there. Welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Ann McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected. That's right. And specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode. Great. Let's get started. So today we're doing another MD talk. Our guest, Dr. William McFarland, or as his patients call him, Dr. Will, will be giving us some tips on how to be our own best medical expert. So, Dr. Will, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your medical practice? Sure. I am a family medicine board certified physician. I've been in hospital-based practice for about three years now. Before that, I worked as an outpatient clinic specialist in Port Lavaca and went to residency at UTMB in Galveston, as well as medical school. And so I've been, by the time you add it all up, probably practicing for close to, I guess, eight years. And so really right now you're doing what kind of medicine? So it's hospital-based medicines. Don't have a clinical practice, so to speak, as if you would think of a traditional physician. I only work in a hospital-based setting. I see patients as they come into the hospital after they've been admitted to the emergency department and try to make sure that their hospital care is organized, is taken care of, uh, coordinate care with specialists, and then I work on getting them out of the hospital as soon as they're well and ready to go home. Well, cool. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show. Before we move into the discussion topic, we always give our listeners a riddle or burning question that we answer later in the show. So I'm going to ask my husband, Dr. Tim McFarland, to give us today's mystery question. Thanks, Anne. So here's the story. A young woman hosted a dinner party and served a delicious pot roast. Her friends gave her rave reviews. One asked for the recipe, so the young woman wrote it down for her. Later, the friend texted her after looking at the recipe. She asked why the recipe called for cutting off both ends of the roast before it's prepared and put in the pan. The dinner party hostess texted back she did not know and would ask her mom, who always did this. The next day, the dinner party hostess called her mom and asked, why do we cut off the ends of the roast before we set it in the pan and season it? Her mom responded, it's how your grandma always did it, and I learned the recipe from her. So the dinner party hostess called her grandmother and asked her, why does cutting off the ends of the roast help with the cooking recipe? So that's the question. How did cutting off both ends of the pot roast make it more delicious? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm not exactly sure. It seems like if you cut the ends off, the juices would run out. We'll let you tell us that answer later in the show. But let's get this topic going now. We've promised to give our listeners tips on how to become their own better medical expert in making decisions regarding their health. Both of you have formal medical educations, but we all have medical experiences either of our own that we've experienced personally or friends that we know or family. So explain how these personal experiences factor into our decisions when it comes to seeking the truth on a medical subject. There's some important definitions that you really need to know and understand the difference on how you make decisions on anything, but particularly on medical decisions. And so I'm going to give some definitions and examples. There's components of the decision-making that make the decision a better one or a stronger potential for a good outcome, and there are strategies for decision-making that are weaker by nature. And I'll start with the experience from my own family history to illustrate this. My father died of a sudden and massive heart attack at the age of 63. He was told for years before that that his cholesterol was very high. By the age of 40, my cholesterol began to increase above recommended levels, so I started taking a statin. So for 25 years, 
I've taken a medication to lower my cholesterol. Statistically, most physicians would agree that's good scientific research supports that decision. Now, we'll talk about later uh, what is good scientific research and should we trust its recommendations. But for now, let's just continue with my story. So I've taken a medication. I've endured its cost, lab work, possible side effects, because basically I believe that research that I trust recommends that action. But what if I die tomorrow at the age of 63 in a car wreck? Statistical analysis of a large group of people over time did not give me useful information. I actually didn't need to take the medicine for 25 years and attempt to live longer than my father. I died at the age of 63 anyway. So you need to understand medical recommendations from physicians are most often based on statistical analysis of a large group of data. Medical decisions that are based on one example are called anecdotal. And that's an important word to understand. So if I could know my singular future, then I could base my life decisions on that information. But I don't know my individual future, so I have to do what's prudent or best advice statistically. So when you attempt to make statistical decisions based on anecdotal information, you can end up accidentally being correct, but you have a very high chance that you're going to be incorrect. And I've had several examples of this over my medical career. One example that's easy to remember is, I think, a poor decision for making health care was a patient asked me to write him a prescription for him not to wear a seatbelt. If he got stopped by a policeman, he did not want to get a ticket. And he felt like if I gave him a prescription that for medical reasons he could not wear a seatbelt, he would not be forced to. So I asked him why. And at first he said he had an old surgery injury, but the truth came out that his uncle died in a fiery car wreck. The patient was convinced that his uncle could have been saved, except he was wearing a seatbelt. So the patient took this anecdotal evidence, this analysis of one incident, and he made a leap that statistically he would be safer to not wear a seatbelt. Most people will look at the statistical evaluation of the safety of wearing a seatbelt and come to a different conclusion. But because of one piece of information, this patient wanted to change his health risk or his activities that might adversely affect his surviving or not surviving in a car wreck. Another example, there's over 2,000 babies every year that die in the United States from SIDS. But one child died of SIDS the night after that child received a vaccine. So now, anecdotal evidence of this one child might make people think that the vaccine caused the SIDS deaths. But is it supported by statistical evidence? Should we all stop wearing seatbelts because of my patient's uncle? So if we use anecdotal evidence to support our medical decisions, unfortunately, a lot of the time, we may end up making poor decisions. And this podcast discussion is about how and why we, both as doctors and as patients, need to strive to make good medical decisions based on good data. And that's what I hope we can explain how to analyze information to make good medical decisions. Okay, so that's really good food for thought as we go along here. And a little nibble from me, the writer, about that word anecdote. The definition of that word means to like tell a short, amusing, or interesting story about a real incident or a person. Or if we have a collection of anecdotes, that it's evidence that we've collected in sort of a casual, informal manner. Um, and we re- we're relying on uh, testimony, like the, what our friend is saying or what we've said has happened. And, and these are events that have happened, so we're, we're just kind of sharing those, and those are anecdotes. So, um, Dr. Will, do you have anything to add to this initial discussion of how to best view our personal experience or our anecdotal experiences or those of others as we get to the truth of a medical subject? 
a lot of times when we look at the world around us and we're taking that external information and we're trying to internalize it and make a kind of a worldview, fundamentally, that is the way that we survive. You see something that happens around you at the basic level, and then you have to process that information so that you can come up with a way to survive that experience. When you think of this as a basic function, it seems to make the most sense that we use our personal experience to come up with a way to survive whatever it is. So fundamentally speaking, anecdotal evidence is all we've had historically to really understand the world around us. Makes me wonder, who was the first guy that realized certain mushrooms would kill you? Had to be someone that observed someone else, probably. Personal experience. I think it's something to understand that anecdotal components of the way that we process the world around us are somewhat inherent to our, our personal survival instinct. So it's fundamental, but as we develop a better understanding of science, of math, of medicine, we have to start to realize that we might not always be the best at deciphering that information and helping make solid, confirmed decisions that will ultimately lead to a longer life or better success, better relationships. There's so many things. It's not just medicine, but it can be significant and something that we have to be aware of. So with advertising, I think they do lots of analysis. Lawyers understand they do jury analysis. What's going to play well, what's not. It's not just medicine, but medicine is where we're kind of honing in on today's discussion. We're kind of at a crossroads. We're in this generation now that has information access, all that we could ever want or approach things that happen to us with all this information at our fingertips too, and we're trying to make sense of it. It can be a struggle and a challenge. I don't think we've ever had information as readily available now as we've ever had. I mean, mean, that's one of the things that educators will talk about with with kids coming up through the schools is that they're going to uh, be the generations that have to be better at deciphering and processing and sifting through just tons of information to get at accurate uh, positions and and ideas. So I've heard a little bit about this word, and and I want you to explain it to me. What is confirmation bias, and why does it matter? When we're evaluating information, we have an inherent desire to, I think, be correct. We tend to take external information and look for things that helps us essentially confirm a truth that we may have fundamental belief in. Uh, For example, if I really, really, really wanted to continue to lose weight or to even start losing weight, I researched ways to lose weight, but I really don't want to exercise and I really don't want to diet. So I will intentionally try to find information that allows me to confirm essentially the existence of something that may or may not be that beneficial for me. So I'll find a berry that someone has done a little bit of research and it shows that they might be able to lose some weight if they eat this berry and I don't make any other changes. Well, I basically try to find truth and something that helps me justify an inherent belief within myself. Oh, okay. So I thought when you started on that, what you were going to say, you try to find things that show that exercise is bad for you, but I guess there's not a lot. Well, of... I mean, you could, and that's, the... <laughs> so that's the bias. It's like, you know, I'm going to lose weight. So, but I know the only thing I'm going to do, I remember doing this myself, I'll, I'll do the cut back on the food, but I sure don't want to exercise. So if 
if I really wanted to defend my position, I would go and look for articles that said, hey, just step back on your calories. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with the way that we try to find information. So yeah. if I'm sitting there and I don't want to exercise, I, I mean, I could theoretically find articles that show exercise is bad for you. If yeah. you look for information, you know, one of the things people tend to seek the truth that they wish to find. Oh, yeah. Instead okay. of really being willing to approach a subject kind of from the scientific method where mm-hmm. you pose hypothesis or identify a problem and you look for information, we tend to identify a problem and then try to confirm what we already believe about that problem. Now we have so much random data, mm-hmm. you can take random data and completely yeah. skew your perspective on a topic yeah. or a subject, especially from a medical perspective. Okay. Hey, Tim, do you have any story that might illustrate that? But we're talking about confirmation bias. Kind of something I made up just silly uh, as a confirmation bias is my friend and I think that we're pretty musically inclined and we realize that there is no such thing as a C sharp, that that's what piano teachers and musicians say there is, but we don't think it exists. Oh, so you concluded that, huh? We concluded that because his son was learning to play the trombone and he never could hit a C sharp. Oh, and okay. so anecdotal. We decided that based on one experience of his son, musicians historically have been wrong trying to teach us that there's a C sharp. It really doesn't exist. If you're not careful, that's how your confirmation bias on an anecdotal piece of information can warp you from what most people would agree a C-sharp really does exist. One thing is you may say, okay, well, what's the significance of this? You know, does it matter? Mm -hmm. Does it even matter if I have a tendency towards this? And it is something that can become incredibly dangerous from a personal perspective, I guess, if you seek constantly information that is going to just confirm your position because you're not really approaching things from sometimes even a reasonable perspective. So it just skews the way we process information. All right. Well, I've heard of another term, and I'd like an explanation about it, but what is the Dunning-Kruger effect, and why does it matter? Do you know anything about that? So, yeah. So, you know, I've thrown it out a couple of times on Facebook or in response to general topics, especially from a medical perspective, and it's not meant to be derogatory, although the way that it's described, in fact, there's even a funny opera about it that might be seen as tongue-in-cheek. I guess it could be looked at as almost like looking down on someone, and that's not really the intention behind the concept. Whoever invented it got the Nobel Prize? Yeah, so it was, I think it was in the early 2000s, there was, you know, two psychologists that were looking at the reasons that people tended to overestimate their capacity to understand information, especially complex information. So fundamental things like just being able to, you know, drive or maybe cook a meal, that's something that there are various truths to whatever that is. You can get to point A, point B, you can go a lot of different ways. There's not really a best way necessarily. There's the safest way maybe, but there's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the best way. What they found is that people tend to overestimate their capacity to do things in very complex tasks or fields of science or fields of math. It is a societal concept. It's pretty consistent amongst the vast majority of, especially the people in the U.S., and that's where most of the studies have been done, but it's a curve, and it's probably best visualized, and maybe we'll be able to add it. Yeah, we'll put a resource to it. Yeah, Yeah. we'll 
we'll add an infographic or something about it. Essentially, it's a comparison of someone's actual knowledge base Mm -hmm. about that versus their belief in their capacity. You could call the x-axis wisdom is one way of putting at it. And then the y-axis could be their actual belief in their capacity. If you look at it very early on in complex tasks, we tend to, especially as a U.S. population, believe that we have a nearly expert capacity to perform whatever that task is or to understand whatever yeah. the concept is. I think is. in this case, we're talking about knowledge more, right. more so. So yeah. it's, it's very early on in researching information or looking up information or understanding difficult, complex medical structures. So the idea is like we've been hit with maybe a new diagnosis. And so we get to the computer and we start looking at all these things and we start learning, feel like we've learned quite a lot. Sure. And, and I mean, right now with even say COVID-19, it's a new virus and it gives us an opportunity to process the information from multiple different viewpoints. You have a layman's viewpoint, you have general medical providers viewpoint, and then you have medical experts viewpoint. On the graph, you would see that very quickly people who don't really know that they lack the knowledge to understand a subject, they believe that they have an intense understanding of the knowledge after they've done a little bit of research. So in a short period of time, they believe that they understand a lot. Whereas someone that might be a medical resource, nurses, physicians, healthcare providers, there is generally a realization that we probably know enough about this, but we don't consider ourselves anywhere near the level of expert that say someone who has no medical experience, if you look at it on the graph of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And then very, very far down the line, after you've kind of gone through different providers and within the healthcare field, uh, getting into infectious disease researchers and virologists and everything else, you would see that there is a realization that you know what you're talking about that you should be considered an expert in that field. And you're probably more willing to discuss their interventions that would be beneficial. But it's something that's an effect that is pretty ubiquitous amongst the population. And so it can have incredibly detrimental effects in the long run. Sort of a confidence thing, like we've read a little and now we know a little and we're confident that we know that. The epidemiologist who knows a lot of information way down the X axis may say, there's a whole lot of things I don't know or understand, but this is what I'm going to start looking at to learn more. So he wouldn't be real high up the Y axis. Right. The person who's like, oh, I read a couple articles and I think I understand this virus pretty well. They're very high up the Y axis on what they think they know, but not really very far out on the X axis on the real information. To some degree, I guess, not intentionally derogatory, but if you look, they they call that the peak of Mount Stupid. It's not necessarily the nicest way to say it, but it's the reality of you really don't know, but you think you know. You don't know enough to know what you don't know. Right. And I'll be honest, when this first came out, I started thinking, well, they'll be able to get a vaccine in three months because every flu season they update the vaccine and it takes them about three months. But then as I began to research and look at it, I realized this isn't going to be updating an existing flu vaccine. They're going to have to invent a whole new vaccine for this infection that's novel. Sure. And it's going to take a lot longer than three months. And so I was, I thought way up on the wisdom curve, three months, we'll have a vaccine. But now that I've extended my X-axis knowledge, I've realized oh, the wisdom had to come down a little bit to be accurate. And it can kind of, I mean, this is going to simplify it maybe for listeners, but I mean, now I'm getting, I'm hearing you guys say that, that, that we're all subject to this. We're all subject to this effect, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is not really understanding 
we don't know as much as we think we know, you know, and, and, and um, experts in a field certainly know far more. A farmer who's been farming and doing this for a long time, we're in the medical background, so we really have no, not much knowledge at all about farming. We could read a lot, but we've not, we aren't in that expert level. But even the experts, you know, don't know everything. So that's kind of what we're talking about. We all have a tendency for that. Well, I would be hard-pressed to read an article on two and then tell my farmer friend who's been doing it for four generations, this is the best way to plant cotton. I guess just mainly we're here to figure out, so what is inhibiting us from being our, you know, a better medical expert for ourselves. We're not going to achieve the medical knowledge that a doctor has, but as we are patients or healthcare consumers, we're looking at in this show, what are the tips? And one, it sounds like one of the things we're starting off with is being aware that we don't know things and we're overestimating what we do know. So how are we going to overcome this reality of, of this Dunning-Kruger effect that goes on in us just sort of innately? Yeah. Recently, they also looked at the Dunning-Kruger effect in other societies. In Japan, especially, they tend to underestimate their capacity or their knowledge. Yeah. So if they took the same concept and they looked at people at about the same experience level, in Japan, the the Japanese culture is a tendency towards underestimating capacity. And then if you don't understand something or if you fail at something, they look at it as an opportunity. Whereas in the U.S. or in, you know, different modern societies that have a different perspective, failure is is not always looked at as an opportunity. It's looked at negative growth. I think one of the first things to do is, I think, beneficial is underestimating one's capacity. Don't overinflate your belief of your own knowledge. Uh, because yeah. it's very easy to gather information. But even gathering the correct information, but synthesizing that information or digesting that information incorrectly will lead to inaccurate So maybe like gather it because you're doing your work. Like right now I'm doing a lot of homework on understanding racism and gathering my information. But at some point I need to run by what I'm taking in with someone who studied it. You know, there's a, there's a doctor that's made that his whole course of study. Sure. And talking with someone, it would be considered maybe the easiest ways of research as far as being able to gather that information. It's also still considered one of the poorest ways of actually getting truthful information. Um, If you look at interacting with, say, physicians um, and asking them information, you're still getting a one-person digestion of that whole concept, giving you their understanding. It's better than nothing. It's really accurate for a lot of medical concepts. That's the whole reason we go see physicians. Mm -hmm. But even that can provide you with poor or inaccurate information because we saw it recently even with individual physicians going on YouTube providing information and then that information turned out to be false or inaccurate or there was an underlying agenda behind it. We can still find what you would consider somewhat professionals that are the outliers. Or that support our bias. Exactly. Getting back to bias confirmation. So if you only search for that, that's the thing. You have to realize inherently you will have a confirmation bias. You will always look for that truth that defines your perspective of the truth. So how do you search for relevant information? A lot of times, you know, I start with a Google search. I'm looking for not just the primary topics of whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with looking at Wikipedia, okay? Mm -hmm. Wikipedia is fine. Is it the end all and the 
most accurate? No, it's not. But when you look at a Wikipedia article, you see at the end of most of those topics or whatever, there is a reference source. Mm -hmm. And if you click on that reference source, it takes you down to the bottom of the Wikipedia article. And there is the reference for whatever it was that they used to define to the concept. To say what they said. Yeah, I mean, there's a reference for that. I have access to information like up to date, you know, some Ovid searches, Medline searches. Those are all kind of scholarly ways of looking information up. Uh, Google actually has a scholar search engine, so you can use Google Scholar. But the problem is most of the time that information is given in a more difficult to digest format, something with a lot of statistics, a lot of R values, P values, you know, oh, yeah. okay. there's a lot of statistics behind that and, and they don't really flesh it out. The abstracts to those articles can be beneficial and it can give you more of a lay concept of whatever it is they're talking about and then the findings. But so if I land on one of those articles that has a lot of mumbo jumbo that's not making sense, you're saying there's an abstract. If I drop down, I'll find an yeah, abstract. Yeah, usually within the article there is, and most of the time it's actually the first thing. It, it, it actually... Oh, it is the abstract yeah, it, and it, then it, it goes into the technical. Yeah, it will give you the fundamentals. And then if you have statistical background or if you took college statistics for whatever your level of study was, you know, you can actually look through and see. Because even finding information that may point towards a correlation doesn't necessarily point towards a cause of whatever that problem is. So you have to find information that shows actual significant data that has an actual and significant application for whatever it is you're trying to research. Well, it seems like then the data could be manipulated to confirm a desired outcome. Yeah, and that's the trick. This is what you probably see most. I hate to say it, but expect that the sensationalized Facebook post is probably manipulated data. As we should also go in and look at things, understanding that we will inherently have a confirmation bias, we need to realize that there is a lot of manipulated data. And usually the more sensational the headline or skewed the perspective is, generally speaking, that is probably not going to be accurate information or it will be accurate data that has been adjusted or manipulated to fit a very specific end goal. Coming from the writing level of content writers, I've been taught in courses how to make a sensational headline out of something because it is what drives the Google search. So a lot of times I've seen people share things and the title of it was quite sensational and you click on the article and it was rather mundane and it actually hardly even supported the title. Sure, so, the, the clickbait concept. But the, it kept getting shared and shared and shared sure. and Google drives this search, which Google serves as the old-fashioned library reference Ooh. card, but that's what we do now. We Google does it for us, only it's it's whatever got hit the most, it's going to rise to the top of the page. I've looked at a lot of COVID information and numbers, so I was startled when I saw an article titled that says, White House scrambles as COVID cases explode in the White House. And it turned out they didn't have any, and then one day they had one, and then another day they had another one. So that sure. exploded, that doubled. Exponential growth that right exponential. there. And yeah. And from this, zero to one to two. And this is all that we, we, this is all tied into, you know, how we're absorbing our news, how we're absorbing our information. We're going to have to get a little more thoughtful. It's going to take a little more time. But anyway. This is probably a modern issue. Yeah. I mean, we've never had data right. available like this. We're right. in the information age with the technology to basically look up anything we want. We don't have the capacity without being very intuitive, without being very intentional. We're going to just continue 
to confirm our right. own desires and our own fears. Right. And I know that in colleges and even in the education system, they're working on teaching children and young people and college students how to resource through the information because they're the ones that are going to have to learn all this data that's available to them, how to interpret it. How do you know that we can weed out bad data? What are some ways we can strategize? I think it's... I mean, you mentioned the sensational headline. I mean, most scientific, really well done uh, science studies have very little sensational headlines. Sure. They're well, very dry. <laughs> that's. I think that's part of the thing. Tim gave a good example of the concept of an explosion of growth within the White House and COVID cases. Yeah. But anybody could sit there and actually look at the data from that and yeah. realize, oh, well, that's not really that significant. One to two. <laughs> One to two. Yes, it's exponential, but it's not explosive growth. Yeah. And so you can take some very basic understanding of numbers and math and look for that. You can develop a better understanding of even statistics would be beneficial. Instead of sitting there and trying to take just numbers from an article or from the research, actually looking at the statistics behind those numbers, doing some research into what makes something statistically significant, doing some research into what makes something actually you know, associate with causation or outcome, you really can benefit from developing a small understanding of some reasonable statistical concepts. Well, a statistical and also maybe scientific. Sure. We're real familiar in the nursing profession. You know, when they do studies, there's a whole process to what makes a study an accurate study versus something that sure. is not done in that way. And even making sure that whatever you're looking up is relevant. You know, if you think you found something, but it's from 1995, oh, yeah. it's probably not yeah, nearly as significant as you might think. I mean, just today, I saw someone again post a Facebook article about the U.S. general talking about not wearing face masks. Well, oh, this was back from March. Yeah. And so the grand scheme of this whole process, we had just started in March. Right. And so if you remove data mm -hmm. as far as timeline and dates and even that information, you absolutely can confirm exactly what you want to already know. That's the thing to be careful of is old data, bad data, inaccurate data, or manipulated data. You have to find good, reputable sources. There's a desire to have a lot of information really fast, and that's just not going to happen with some of these newer situations. So are there any specific trusted references and resources that you would name? We can give a list at the uh, end. To date has a free, basically patient side resources that can be used for people. So I think what we'll do is we'll get a list together for those listeners that want to look yeah, at Yeah, and we'll put that on our website. We've touched on a lot of these things, but why would we choose to trust an expert in a field over someone who is close to us that had a terrible outcome and they're really vocal about it or they've been a dissenter on, on a certain topic? I think the thing to realize is what are you looking for? Are you looking for facts or truth or are you looking for more ways to confirm your own belief? And I would hope that most people would ultimately want to lean towards identifying the truth mm -hmm. behind something. If you have no desire to do that, then you will probably never get over that first level of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Okay. It goes back to that. You, you have to realize that you probably don't know what you think you know. And so if you're 
you're looking at some of these highly vocal dissenters regarding a specific medical concept or a specific thing, uh, vaccinations, COVID, uh, statins and diabetes, all of these things, there may be some components of truth, but undoubtedly there is probably a lot of poorly processed data. You're going to find that a lot of people also benefit from a financial standpoint. You know, if I'm going to write a book and I want to be a dissenter, if I got kicked out of whatever my field was, but I still carry around a belief that I'm correct Mm -hmm. and I want to come up with a way to make some money, nothing sells like propaganda right now. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing influences, nothing really has the capacity to make someone a lot of money like propaganda. I would also add that there's a place for sympathy and empathy, and I'm not trying to be unsympathetic, but at the same time, an individual's situation, as terrible as it may be, is not necessarily a good statistical analysis of what the truth is. You're kind of touching on this. This is the next question that I had is that how do we go about taking our emotion out from our pursuit of truth? I mean, we have a lot of compassion or we're afraid. You might give me a diagnosis and I'm, I'm afraid and I've listened and I hear some fear stories and, um, about outcomes and things. You know, my heart is like, I want to understand this, get to the truth so I can medically make decisions for myself and, and do better on whatever it is I've received a diagnosis of. So how do I keep my emotions out of that? You know, one of the things that I do is I feel for that. I look for that emotion. I know that it's there. Okay. So say if there is a controversial subject, uh, maybe from a medical perspective, I have to do this uh, even researching you know vaccinations because I want to make sure that I'm accurate. I want to make sure that I am removing, I guess, my desire from a scientific perspective to make sure that, oh man, I've got to be right because it's got to be science. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to make sure that I'm careful to try to weed through information without carrying that emotional baggage. So I kind of realize that I'm going to have that tendency and I try to find the truth anyways. Uh, Just knowing that it's going to be there, knowing Mm -hmm. that you will probably have it is the first step in removing that emotional component. If you know it's going to be there, Right. Then you can be more cognizant of the fact that it's going to influence what you're trying to find. So instead of trying to find a viewpoint that defends yourself, try to find information about something that defends the opposite perspective. Right. So I'll look for information that might defend the opposite perspective. And then I'll use, for me, I have knowledge about in certain subjects. I don't have knowledge about everything. And so I use other experts' information to try to discern truth when it comes to different medical topics or, you know, social topics as well. You know, truth is, is it, it's relative. Is it relative? Well, you know, and that's the thing. You're going to see that people will say that truth is relative. Uh, It's a common philosophical belief structure. And in certain instances, it is. So... Like right now, we're sitting in a room, and what you see defines your truth about this room. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing what's behind me. We're, right. For those across, of you listening, we're across, across from, from each table. other. Yeah. So, but my truth about this room is completely different for the vast majority of it than mm-hmm. your truth is. Right. So that is relative truth or perspective. Mm-hmm. So that, that is one way of defining it. There are always going to be certain things that might have a rel- relative truth to them. 
when it comes to fundamental scientific or medical recommendations, there really is some absolute truths. People may say, oh, well, that's relative truth. Well, it's information that has been synthesized, has been looked over. You've got thousands of experts in all of these fields looking at information to try to provide you with the most accurate recommendations. Yes, things change over time, and we have different recommendations now than we did 15 years right. ago, than we had 30 years ago. You know, that's the evolution of medicine. Well, so. and we just had a conversation, Tim and I, about the mask wearing and how a physician in the OBGYN, what was that? Germs really were started to be studied or evaluated early on, and one of the pioneers was an OBGYN that he delivered babies multiple a day, and he noticed that if at any course of time during the day he delivered a child that had, say, an infection like pneumonia, that there was a likelihood that children delivered after that child would also get ill, whereas he might go a whole day without any babies having any infection, or he might go a morning. And so he began to realize it was important that he wash his hands well for 10 minutes and that he dry them well instead of going from one delivery to the next with contaminated hands. Right. So basic So that was like a basic discovery. Back, I mean, that was a surprising discovery back then. And back it, then but that is definitely still, even today, we know that that's a truth, one right. of those absolute truths, that and so cleanliness. We have, we have masks. Can they guarantee that you won't get any infections if you wear a mask? No, that's not its point. But it greatly decreases your chance of getting an infection. And you would never want a surgeon to go into the operating room and perform surgery and say, well, masks really haven't been proven. You'd be like, I'm sorry, that was proven well over 50 years ago. If we want to go back to healthcare before the concept of germs, before the concept of hygiene, before the concepts of self-protection and masks, then you're really putting medical care back a long ways. Yeah, so there, there's just a lot. And, of course, lawyer speak enters into all that. Someone had a picture of Facebook of uh, this mask isn't going to protect you from COVID, which means, it, you know, don't sue us. But it, we know that the mask will provide some protection from spit and snot and coughing of that person. Sure. But the lawyer's going to have them put on that box. It's not going to protect you from COVID. So this has been a great discussion. Um, just a couple final little things. Uh, why do you professionals in general just not post good information on social media on controversial issues, um, medical or otherwise? I think a lot of that is a, a combination of uh, a realization that we are probably not the experts. You know, it goes back to you know where we sit in that Dunning Kruger effect curve. We what do you know. mean? We well, so we're aware that we understand the information. Mm -hmm. We understand that we can provide you with good information if you ask me. Mm -hmm. But I am not the CDC. I am not the health department. So you're stepping back to allow that platform to be heard from the ones that are sure. orchestrating kind of the, the whole, how, how the population is supposed to respond. Right. That? Because a lot of research goes into that from an epidemiological standpoint, from a virology standpoint. Um, I can have my beliefs about the benefits of certain topics or whatever, but you just tend to see a little bit more of a reserve response from medical professionals. Also, we do have to be careful. A lot of us have been told 
by our employers. Oh, yeah. Be very careful about what you put. I know that that's something that I have experienced personally. So I know that I have to be intentional. If I'm going to put something on Facebook, it is not going to be a link to just a random article. It will usually be something that is released by the CDC or the health department with regards to evidence-based medicine or medical recommendations. And some of that changes. Like I said, you know, something from March may not necessarily be relevant today, but I have to be aware of the fact that uh, what I say can sometimes be taken as the expert in that field. And while I have yeah, a medical have, degree... Even though you have more expertise than maybe what's sure. on that, that fa- Facebook stream, you're, re- you're withholding or reserving right. not and that's, doing and that. that's where I And that's where I say I know where I'm at in my understanding and my knowledge and my wisdom, whatever you want to call it. And so I wouldn't consider myself the expert in COVID-19. I wouldn't consider myself the expert in certain other controversial topics, Mm -hmm. but I would refer to who I would consider an expert in that situation, which would be CDC, health department, et cetera. And it seems a little odd to me that I know a little bit about electricity, but I'm not the expert that knows how to build a nuclear power plant. Sure. And uh, there's so many fields that a plumber are. How do you build a bridge? What tensile strength does it take to handle 63 18-ton trucks? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, somebody else better design that bridge because I don't have that expertise or experience. When we say things like the CDC, there's some people who feel like, oh, the CDC is in it for this or in it for that. But I don't think they understand the CDC is a group of specialists that are trying to give their best expert opinion. And I think that just like I have to trust the expert opinion in how to build a nuclear power plant and disseminate electricity safely, sometimes I have to look at experts and go, maybe they're an expert for a reason. I don't think there's any other field in existence that has as many pseudo experts as there is in medicine or politics. I think those are the two areas. (laughs) I think those are the two areas that are right with pseudo-experts and a lot of pseudoscience. Well, I don't know about pseudo, but I think I can tell you quite a few things about politics if you've got the time. So the name of our show is Paradoxify, and we've been talking about getting to the truth of things. And sometimes in a paradox, there's something that's true, but we don't always see it as true at first, and it may even look opposite to what we think. So our discussion was underscoring today how getting to the truth in medical things is not always as quick and easy as we would like to make it. We've agreed that there are some absolute truths out there. And faith or the belief in God is like this. And so our next set of questions we've asked our guests each time, and you've known that we were going to ask these and you've agreed to answer them. So we really appreciate that. Can you tell us, are you a person of faith? And if so, what is your faith? Uh, yes, I have personal belief in Christianity, and so that is my my faith that I view the world through. And is there something you find satisfying about that faith? For me, it is not just, and this is something that I think some people will struggle with if they don't have a scientific background, it interweaves a understanding of the universe for me in a way that nothing else satisfies. I've done a lot of research into my own faith, so it's not just experience, it's mm-hmm. also Um, something that I have kind of looked at from existence, from the way that I look at black matter, from the way that I think about light and time travel and multiple planes of existence. So for me, it satisfies something that I can't define through Mm -hmm. a scientific perspective. Um, And then it has a very personal relationship for me. 
Um, it's, it's something that I've experienced, something that you have to be careful because a lot of faith-based experiences are anecdotal and that's okay. That's, mm -hmm. I think that's the thing. That's, this is my area of my life where I don't have to have the scientific component for mm -hmm. everything. Um, so that is incredibly satisfying. Okay. So is there any part of it you sometimes are like, man, I'm just, this is just not satisfying. I think as maybe the modern church has approached some of its social justice mm. kind of concepts, you know, I don't really think I realized that until mm. maybe even just the last couple of months, okay. you know, so that's been very difficult for me to really understand some major ways that we need to improve as a church in the way that we uh, talk about sin mm -hmm. and the way that we uh, interact with the world with regards to what we think should happen. Is there an early memory that you'd like to share about that you practiced your faith? I won't say an early memory. Uh -huh. I'll say a more recent memory, but it was when we had the opportunity to to adopt our first child. I remember it's more kind of the combination of my wife and my faith and the way that we really prayed over that situation and just seeing kind of a bizarre series of circumstances create an opportunity for us to go through with my wife being there for the birth of our child, being able to help deliver our daughter, being able to interact and be with our birth mom and you know, just all of those things, there was an incredible amount of doubt in myself and the way that that was going to unfold. And I think that was a lot of that kind of skeptic tendency that I have. And my wife just keeps saying, you know, this is where I have to be. This is where God's calling me to be. And I think in any other situation that would have just dissolved. And so, you know, now she's five and wow, she's awesome. And that's she, really, really you know, would nice. love to interact and you know, um, uh, interrupt this podcast and any opportunity. <laughs> so well, we may get that. Yeah. So great. Well, thank you so much. And, um, we're going to let Tim give us the answer. What in the world? Why did the grandmother think, uh, or yeah, what was that? What a roast, was the, I think. the roast? Why were, what, tell us about the, the pot roast. When they actually asked the grandmother, she started laughing and she finally said we were very poor and the largest pan that we had the roast didn't quite fit in, so we always had to trim a little bit off. Okay, so it so. really wasn't, it was one of those conclusions, making a conclusion there that I was thinking so maybe it made was, it taste better or something. There was one uh, anecdotal evidence that the daughter had seen her mother do over and over, so that her thought was, let's take this data and this is how it And it had in. an effect on the cooking. But it yeah, and I'd have thought, oh, it increases surface area, so more seasoning could yeah, uh, penetrate yeah. the meat. So, so, okay, so it was that. Well, it's it's been a lot of fun, and I appreciate it. And we thank you, Dr. Will, for being here and sharing yeah, your perspective with us. And yes, thank you very much. And that's our show, guys. Now you two can become your own best medical expert. We appreciate your listening. Check out our website at www.paradox.com. Com. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-F-I.com for show recordings, notes, and resources. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and most other podcast platforms. Again, join us soon as we talk about STEM subjects and bringing you more unexpected stories of STEM and faith.